While you're getting settled there, let me remind you that tonight we're having a baptism service and we're inviting you to come back for that if you can make it back. God, Eric tells me there's about 12 folks and counting getting baptized and about half of them are college age students. So we're seeing this cool revival in our college ministry, which is cool. And so you'll, if you come back tonight, you'll hear this, the testimonies of faith. And I guarantee you that if you, if you come to that, those stories will inspire you. They'll encourage you as a follower of Jesus. So join us for that. The service starts at five. We'll worship. There will be a message. And then the baptism part starts at six. So if you just want to come back for the baptism, you can come back at six o'clock and there will be a little break and then you can come in and join the baptism, but join us for that. The second thing I'll tell you before we get in the word is that last week I gave our whole church an opportunity to fill out a prayer card because in next weekend, our leadership team, our pastors and our elders go away for a weekend of prayer. And our goal on that weekend is to pray for everyone in our church by name. And so if you missed that opportunity last week, these cards are in the foyer. You can head out, grab one of these cards, fill it out, and leave it in the fishbowl out there. There's a place if you're comfortable to share your name and your contact information. But just let us know, how can we pray for you? What's happening in your life right now? A relationship maybe, or a situation at work, or something that you're praying for. We want to know that so that we can be praying for you. Fill those out sometime today. But right now, will you pull out your Bible with me and let's open to the Gospel of Luke together. The ushers are coming down the aisle. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We want you to have the written word there in front of you. We're four weeks into our study in Luke, and we've made it halfway through chapter one, which means we are cooking, all right? I think Jesus may come back before we finish this series in Luke, which would be a great thing. Uh, it would be wonderful. This morning, I had a moment in my office. I got here early to pray and get ready, and I, I had a moment, and it was a moment where I just marveled at this account that Luke has written. And you just need to know that for me, for, for, for my role here as a pastor, it feels like such an unbelievable privilege to each week to get to do this deep dive into scripture and to have God week in and week out take my breath away at how profound his word is. And what I want to share with you today and what I'm hoping is coming through in this series is that Luke's account is a masterpiece. I mean, this thing is a masterpiece. It is like an artistic masterpiece. And Luke is like a master artist. And he's painted with this unbelievable palette of color to put together this orderly account of Christ. And every stroke, every detail, every moment in his gospel, every character, every story, every incident is, is there on purpose. Nothing is haphazard. Even the account that we'll look at today, which might, at, at first you'll, you'll, you might ask yourself, why, why is he including this story? Luke's clearly trying to get us ready for the moment when Jesus enters the scene of human history, the birth of Christ. And so he's writing all of these characters and all these stories to help the reader be ready for the coming of Christ. And every stroke, every color matters. I'm married to an artist. And sometimes I, I, I sit and I watch her create. And it gives me a deeper appreciation for what Luke has done. 
My wife paints, but she also works with fiber art. So she makes these weavings that are like wall-hung weavings. And I'll, I'll sit in awe and watch as she picks every color of thread that she wants to put into her weaving. And it's, it's a labor of love, and it's so meticulous. And I'll watch her, and she always is scowling because artists, they're, they're, you know, they're, they're tortured souls. And she's looking at this weaving, and then she'll look over at me, and she'll say, come over here and tell me what you think about this. And I'm honestly thinking, do you really want my opinion on this? Because I don't know anything about art. And I'll say, it's beautiful. And she's like, go away. You don't know what you're talking about. And then she'll be laboring, and, and then she'll realize something's missing here. There's like a color that I need to add that will cause the whole thing to come together. And then she'll find that color and she'll put it into the weaving and suddenly it'll go, and it's like perfect. And that's what Luke has done in the account that we're about to read. It's like for Luke, there was one strand that's missing. One color of thread that he needs to now weave into the story in order for his reader to really be ready for the birth of Christ. That's what we're going to learn about this morning. And I'm I'm going to tell you a, a truth that I want you to think about. It's going to be this thread that Luke is now going to weave into his account. And here's the thing. I need you to really think about this because if you miss what I'm about to say to you, you're not going to understand this story. But what is more, you're really not going to understand Luke's gospel. Think about this truth. It goes like this. The ability to fully grasp the significance of Jesus is not a part of the natural human condition. Okay? The ability to really grasp how important Jesus is is not something that we naturally do as humans. Left on our own, left to our own devices, we will miss it. We won't get it. Now, you can understand all kinds of truths, even some truths about God, and, and, and people on their own can even understand some truths about Jesus. But the ability to perceive the full significance, like in God's redemptive story of who Christ is, why he matters, like at an eternal level, that insight can only come to a person through a gift of God. God has to give you a gift. And that becomes a little thread that Luke is now going to weave into his account. Will you look at it with me? We're going to read the whole story together. Our text today is verses 39 to 56. And as we go along, I'm going to stop along the way and I'm going to, I'm going to pull on this thread for you because I need you to see it. So I'll stop along the way and make some observations. And then when we get to the end, I'm going to give you three practical takeaways that you can go home with today. We look at it, Luke chapter 1 starting in verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah 
and she greeted Elizabeth. Now stop and just put your finger there and let me remind you where we last left Mary. When we last saw Mary, she had had this profound experience, this visitation from an angel, Gabriel, who made a promise to her that was out of this world, that although she was not yet married and yet still a virgin, she was going to conceive, and it was not going to be any baby. This baby was going to become the most important person in human history. He would be called God's son. And the angel had promised Mary, I'll give you a sign that nothing is impossible with God, and the sign is this, your relative, your cousin Elizabeth, even though she is far along in years, she has conceived as well. She is six months along. And so what happens is that Mary, in great haste, immediately leaves her home, and she goes on this pretty long journey to visit Mary. It was probably 90 miles from Mary's home to visit her cousin Elizabeth. And it would have been costly and it would have been dangerous. Why would Mary take this journey? The reader is probably wondering, if you're reading slowly, which I want you to begin to do, read slowly. There's so much detail. What's happening is that Mary has heard something so profound, a promise that God has made to her, and she wants to go as quickly as she can and and with faith in her heart to see how God has fulfilled what he has spoken to her. And what God does in his providence is he brings together now in this story these two women. It's a meeting of the moms, the moms of these two boys who will become critical in God's redemptive purposes. And in God's providence, they have this encounter, and it's, it's powerful and dramatic. And one of the things that Luke does that I want you to see in this is that he uses a literary device to increase the sense of drama. And the, and the device is called insider knowledge or insider intelligence. What I mean by this is you as the reader, as you're reading this account, you know things that the characters in the story do not know. You've learned these things because you've been following along with Luke as he's told the account. And so there's this dramatic moment. Mary is about to walk through the door of her cousin's house, and there are all these things that she does not know and that Elizabeth does not know, but you know them. So you're about to watch this incredibly dramatic moment recognizing they're about to have a profound experience. And what you're going to discover as the reader is that they're actually going to come to knowledge about certain things that they should not know at all. The only way they could know certain things is by something divine. Something divine. So, for example, Mary does not realize that Elizabeth has secluded herself from all human contact for five months. We learned this two weeks ago. Elizabeth, in her joy, decided, I'm going to cut off myself from all humans. Mary doesn't know this. So she has no idea that when she walks through the door, this is the first human encounter that Elizabeth has had. And she happens to have it with the mother of God's Messiah. Mary, as she's walking through the door, it's so dramatic. Mary does not realize that the very same angel that visited her had also visited Elizabeth's husband. She, she doesn't know that. We know that. 
Mary, did you know? She doesn't know, okay? She has no idea, but we do. We know Gabriel has come to both of these families. This is really dramatic. Mary doesn't realize that the boy in Elizabeth's womb is incredibly special in God's plan. His whole purpose for being here is to point to the significance of the child that will eventually be in her womb. Amazing. But there's also things that Elizabeth doesn't know. Did you know that Elizabeth, when Mary walks through the door, Elizabeth, in this moment, she does not know that Mary is pregnant. She doesn't know this. And you know what took my breath away this morning as I was studying this passage? Mary doesn't even know that she's pregnant yet. I have read this story for 20 years, and I never noticed that. That when Mary walked through the door of Elizabeth's house, she did not know yet that she had conceived. They didn't have pregnancy tests back then, right? So think of the drama. Mary's had this visit from Gabriel. He's made these promises. He said, the Holy Spirit is going to fall upon you and you will conceive and you will have a child. And for some reason, Mary believes. And then she heads out on this journey. And my guess is on that journey for those 90 miles, four days, she was thinking about everything that had just happened to her. Questioning and pondering and wrestling and maybe even at times doubting and going, is this even possible? How could this possibly be? I am a virgin. So the, dra the drama is high because she opens the door to Elizabeth's house and she does not even know yet that she's conceived, that God has fulfilled his promise to her. How will Mary learn that she has a child in her womb? Who will who will, which character in this story will have the ability to perceive the significance of what's just happened and say it and declare it? It's a, the most surprising character. We look at it with me, verse 41. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby in her womb leaped. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. It's amazing. It's just amazing. Did you know that in Luke's gospel account, the only people who have the ability to really see the significance of who Jesus is are the characters who are filled with the Holy Spirit. Did you know that? There's all these characters in Luke's gospel. Some of them learn about Christ or meet Christ or hear an announcement about Christ, and they don't get it. 
It's lost on them. They, they, oh, they, they understand Jesus is a human being, but they completely miss all of the salvation and redemption and miraculous nature of who this child is. They, they don't get it. And then other characters meet Christ or see Christ or hear something about Christ, and immediately they are given a gift where they're able to see beneath the surface and they're able to see into the purposes, the divine redemptive purposes of God, and they immediately understand something profound about Jesus. And those characters are always described as being filled with the Holy Spirit. It's it's like a thread that Luke begins to weave through his account. So Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit, and what happens? Look at it in your Bible. She's filled with the Holy Spirit, and immediately she begins to say these things that she could never know were it not through a divine gift. And it happens again and again. In that next week, we'll see Zechariah. Remember, Zechariah had been, had been muted. God hit the mute button on Zechariah's life. He could not speak. And what happens next week is that Zechariah gets filled with the Holy Spirit, and God goes unmute, <laughs> and he begins to prophetically declare truths about the gospel that he could not possibly know without the Spirit of God. And then in a couple of weeks, we'll read a story of a man named Simeon who, because he's filled with the Holy Spirit, he knows that he will not die until he meets God's Messiah. How could someone know that? Luke tells us. He takes a thread and he sticks it into his weaving and he says, here's, now, reader, hearer, this is you. Luke says, here's the thread you need to see. Before I tell you about the birth of Christ, the only people who can see his significance are people who get filled with the Holy Spirit. Amazing. Humbling humbling. But you know the first person who perceives the significance of what's happening in Mary's womb? It's the six-month-old fetus, the baby John. (laughs) Did you see that? Mary walks into the room. She doesn't know she's pregnant. Elizabeth doesn't know she's pregnant, but someone does. It's John the Baptist, the forerunner. We learned about him. And what does he do? He does the Toyota leap in his mother's womb, okay? He just jumps for joy. I remember when Kathy was pregnant with Lauren. I remember I would, I would get over close, and I would lay my neck on Kathy's belly, and I would sing. And then every once in a while, you'd feel like this leg go you know, it was like, whoa, and you could see her stomach move. It looked like a scene from the movie Alien. It was like, whoa, what's going to happen here? And Lauren was really, actually, Lauren was calm. In fact, Kathy's doctor said, she's just been in there napping for the last nine months. And I was like, that was a sign of things to come. The most sedentary lifestyle I've ever seen. And Bridget was exactly the opposite. Moms, you know this. One kid is like kind of calm, and another kid is just pounding on your belly, right? Bridget was like giving birth to a ninja. She was just in there punching and kicking. And that's John. That's John the Baptist. His first act of fulfilling his divine purpose, because he was 
Remember, we learned he was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. And it was inside of his mother's womb that he first said, hey, mom, I need to let you know something. The mother of God's Messiah just walked in the room. And you know what happens in that moment? It triggers a spiritual revival in Elizabeth's heart. Did you see that? See, we read so fast that we miss these moments. John the Baptist leaps in her womb, and what happens to Elizabeth? She is immediately filled with the same spirit. And then she starts to declare all these things. She says, Mary, you are pregnant. Mary did not know that. She says, Mary, you are blessed. God has shown up. There is a blessing in your womb. This is amazing, Mary. Did you know that Elizabeth is the first person in Luke's account who describes Jesus Christ as her Lord? Did you see that? Verse 41. She's the very first person who says he will be not just the Lord, which he will be, but he will actually be my Lord. So she says, verse 42, why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Verse 43, sorry, I misled you. Verse 43, why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? Lord was, God was described as Lord all throughout the account, but this is the first time where someone says Jesus Christ is Lord. And not just the Lord, Jesus Christ is my Lord. Did you know that the only way a person can say that is through a gift of God's Holy Spirit? When I was early in my ministry, I was a young man. I was speaking at a Young Life property. I was on Young Life staff before I came to River West. And I was out at Wild Horse Canyon, the Washington Family Ranch, and I was the month-long speaker. And I remember vividly that in Young Life, they, they preached the whole gospel. So I had, I had come through all of the different talks in the gospel, and we got to the fifth night where you, where you just preach the cross. You just tell high school kids about Jesus dying on a cross for human sin. And I was up there giving this talk. And then when I got to the end of the talk, I sent all this 450 kids out into the darkness to be alone, to have a time with God in quiet. And I remember that when I finished that, I stepped back off the stage behind the curtain and something totally unexpected happened to me. I got hit with the strongest wave of discouragement I've ever felt. Doubt. I remember even thinking, do I even believe what I just said? I like, I leaned up against the wall. It was so emotional. I leaned up against the wall and I fell to my knees. And I remember thinking in that moment, how is it possible that any of these kids will, will come to Christ? How, how, how would this even happen? I was just so discouraged. And what happened to me in that moment was that God reminded me of a verse that I had read that morning that had been clanging around in my heart, and I didn't know why until this moment when God brought that verse back to me. And here's the verse. I'm going to put it on the screen. It's from the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 12. Think about this. 
Paul said he knew something that Luke knew, a thread that leaves Luke and goes into the New Testament. Paul said, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And not only that, no one can say Jesus is Lord without the Holy Spirit. Amazing. And I remember that verse. I, I, I remember, wait a minute, Adam. This is nothing about you. It's not about your talk. It's not about the only way that one of these high school students will cry out like Elizabeth. Jesus, you are my Lord. The only way is if God pours out his Holy Spirit in their heart. Amen. And so I prayed. I was weeping. I was leaning against a wall. And I just started praying, please, God, pour out your spirit. Pour out your spirit. Which is a prayer that I'm going to have you pray when we get to the end of our time together. Now, here's what happened to Elizabeth. When the moment that she understood what was happening in her life and she was filled with the Holy Spirit, the very first thing that she experienced was a deep, joy-filled humility. She says, verse 43, how is it possible that God would allow the mother of my Lord to come visit me? It was as if Elizabeth, the first kind of characteristic, the way you would know God's spirit is at work in me is you feel this, you, you come to this posture of humility that's so deep. And it's not a woe is me, it's a, it's joyful, joy-filled humility. And you say, God, I am so undeserving and you have been so good. Hallelujah. That's how you'll know. That's how you'll know. I don't know about you, but my guess is this moment for Mary was really profound. And we know it was because in a minute, Mary is going to have her own spirit-filled moment. It's called the Magnificat. <laughs> okay? But before we do that, I, I need to take just a second, and I, I'm going to ask you to capture with me what Luke is doing in this account. This is critical. Luke is now thinking about his audience. That's me. That's you. That's Theophilus. That's every Christian who's read the Gospel of Luke or every non-Christian who's read the Gospel of Luke. And what Luke is doing in this moment is he's targeting the human heart. And he's saying, now, wait a minute. Look what's happening in the story. Elizabeth is having an experience. And as a part of that experience, something is awakened in her. She goes through a revival. And the, and the reader is going, what's, what's going on here, Lord? And has this happened to me? How does she know these things? And the, I think Luke's point is to tap us into a deep longing that we all have, which is to know and to be able to see the deep things of God and maybe even to begin to long for that if we don't already have that gift. That's what Luke is doing. It's just a little thread that he weaves through the account. And do you know who he wrote that for? He wrote that for you and for your neighbor. 
He wrote it for me. And Mary is amazed. Now look what happens to Mary. This has been in the life of the church the next 10 verses from 40, basically 46 to 56. It's called the Magnificat because in the Latin, the first word is magnify. This, this hymn has been used by the church to pray and sing. We're going to sing it at the end of the message. But will you just look at what happens to Mary in this moment? She learns, God's answered his promise to me. I'm going to have a baby. And she sings a song. And here's what she says. And Mary said, verse 46, My soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He's shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Amazing. Amazing. Luke actually does not say Mary was filled with the Holy Spirit, but he doesn't need to because we already know that she was filled with the Holy Spirit. First of all, there's no way Mary could have ever put together this kind of a hymn without the work of the Spirit. But we already know that Gabriel had said to her, the reason that you're going to conceive is because God's Spirit is going to come upon you and the shadow of the most, the power of the Most High will overshadow you. You will be filled. And so she begins to sing this song. And there's so much here. I could preach five sermons on the Magnificat alone, but then it would be a five-year series. And we only want it to be a four-year series. So what I'm going to do right now, I'm going to show you the theme that holds this entire hymn together. And the reason I'm going to show you this hymn is because it's a truth that Mary discovers about God that she could have never known without the help of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit lets Mary into a hidden trait about who God is and how he works. She's able to know something about God's hidden ways that she could not possibly know otherwise. And I'll, I'll summarize it like this. I'll, I'll use a phrase to describe it. I'm calling it the upside-down way of God. Just think about this. Or, you, or I could call it the upside-down way of the gospel. In God's kingdom, the way to greatness goes through humility, Right? It's like an upside down, it's counterintuitive in our culture. Because in our culture, the way to greatness is to become great. But in God's kingdom, the way to greatness 
goes through humility. If you want to be first, Jesus said, you make yourself last. If you want to be truly great, you make yourself nothing. In God's economy, people who think they have everything figured out, people who are self-sufficient, people who are arrogant, those are the people in God's economy who are unimportant. But the people who are humble, the people who understand their spiritual need, the people who are lowly of low estate like Mary, in God's kingdom, those are the people who are deeply significant. It's like this inversion. And what happens is that first Mary realizes this is what God has done for me. Did you see that? Verses 47 and 48. She says, the reason my spirit is rejoicing in God my Savior is because he looked on the humble estate of his servant. Mary says, I am the lowest of the low, but look what God has done. Behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Mary says, I'm going from the lowest of the low. I'm a 15-year-old girl from Nazareth. I'm poor. I have no power. I have no influence. I have no future. I go from nothing to the most blessed woman in human history. And Mary says, that fills my heart with joy. There's this joy-filled humility, which is exactly what Elizabeth experienced when she was filled with the Holy Spirit. I'm going to come back to that at the end. But what Mary does is she says, this is not just what God has done for me. This is what God does. This is just the way of God. And so then Mary says, now let me show you. This, God just does this over and over again in human history. Verses 57, 50, um, yeah, 56, 57, 58. You see it there. What happens? Actually, starting in verse 51, God scatters the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. People who are prideful in their hearts, they get scattered. People who are exalted, they get the mighty from their thrones get brought down. People of humble estate like Mary and others, what happens? God exalts them. People who are poor, hungry, marginalized in our world, in God's economy, those are the people who matter the most. It's so profound. It's this way of God, this upside-down way. And what Mary realizes is the way of God will become the way of my son, Jesus. He will, through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, he will manifest the way of God perfectly. Everyone who watches him, everyone who hears him teach, everyone who learns about him throughout the rest of human history will see in Jesus a way that is totally unlike the way of our world. Jesus will say things like, he'll say, if you try to be, if you, if you want to be great, make yourself nothing, make yourself a slave. And Jesus will not just say that, he will live that out. So for Jesus in the gospel, the way to being exalted, it takes him high and lifted up to a sinner's cross where he suffers. 
the way we're the God of the universe, omnipotent, almighty, and powerful, the way that he enters human history, he enters through the frail humanity of a baby who's laid in a manger, the most humble entry point in human history. And Mary realizes, my son will live this out perfectly in our world, and he'll call each and every one of his followers to imitate that way. That's the call that goes out. You say, do I understand the way of Jesus? Am I following the way of Jesus in my life? You can't do it without the work of the Holy Spirit. Did you know that? The world, our culture is telling us to live exactly the opposite of this. Isn't that true? Two weeks ago, we lost, the Christian world lost one of the great saints. Eugene Peterson passed away. Many of you know that name. Eugene Peterson was a really gifted scholar, writer. He wrote the message, translation of the Bible. He wrote countless books. He wrote a book near the end of his life and ministry that he called The Jesus Way. And he basically talked about everything that Luke is showing us. I want to read one quote that was just so profound from this. Eugene Peterson is reflecting on the moment when Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And Eugene Peterson says, when Jesus put those three ideas together, they're they're supposed to be interconnected. Jesus is the way, he's the truth, and he's the life. And here's what Eugene Peterson said. I'll put this on the screen. Think about this. He said, the Jesus way wedded to the Jesus truth brings about the Jesus life. We can't proclaim the Jesus truth, but then do it any old way we like. Nor can we follow the Jesus way without speaking the Jesus truth. Here's here's what I think he's saying. He's saying, if you love Jesus and you want your life to communicate the truth of Jesus, you can't communicate the Jesus truth if in your life you're not living the Jesus way. The truth about Jesus won't come through a life that's living in a worldly way. So the way for your life in part, to speak the word of Jesus is for your life to be modeled after the way of Jesus. And the way of Jesus is this upside-down way. And you say, how could I possibly do that? Well, you can't do it without the Holy Spirit. You can't do it without the Holy Spirit. But, River West, can I tell you something? Our community desperately needs Christian people who are living the way of Jesus. Amen? This community needs this so much. Is there a community that you can think of where the Jesus way is more counterintuitive than our community? No. I need you. God needs you to walk out of here with a renewed commitment. Jesus, I want to walk in your way so that your glory will shine in my neighborhood, in my workplace in my marriage, in my relationships. Okay, so I'm going to close. I'm going to do this quick. I'm going to give you three takeaways, all right? Because you're out there going, please give me something practical, dude. Give me something practical. Here, I want you to do all three of these things, and you can do them. 
So you'll want to write these down. Three takeaways, okay? Here's number one. The most important, the most significant prayer that you could pray during this season of revival is to ask God to pour out his Holy Spirit. Like that is the prayer that I want everyone in our church to begin praying. God, please pour out your Holy Spirit. Like my moment against the wall, weeping, desperate, realizing there's no way people will call out to Christ as Lord unless, God, you pour out your Holy Spirit. And what I'm asking you to do is to begin to pray that prayer for our church, for our community, for your own life, for your neighbors, for your friends. Make this a part of your everyday prayer. Lord, please, in your mercy, pour out your spirit. We're going to give you opportunities to pray like that. So this Thursday night, we're having right here in our sanctuary an evening that's devoted to prayer and worship. 6.30 p.m., right here in our sanctuary, we're going to worship and we're going to spend time praying and we're going to pray prayers like this for our church. Come join us for that, okay? That's takeaway number one. Here's takeaway number two. So practical, okay? So simple. This week, seek the Holy Spirit for how you can walk in the upside-down way of Jesus. You need to seek the Spirit for this. It's not, you're not going to wake up tomorrow and naturally live like this. You're going to have to wake up tomorrow and say, Spirit, will you show me what this looks like today in my workplace? How do I... How do I live that upside down, humble, taking the place of a servant, taking the place of the least of these so that people would look at my life and see the reality of Jesus? Right now, you're thinking of your context. I know you are. You're thinking of a meeting. You're thinking of a relationship. And you're thinking, how am I possibly going to live like this? You have to seek God's spirit for it. So do that this week. And then here's the third one, and I want us to do this every time we gather. Anytime you come before God in worship, seek the Spirit for some of that joy-filled humility. Mary felt it. She prayed to God about it. Elizabeth felt it, that humility that's filled with joy because you, you remember again, God, I'm so undeserving, and yet you have blessed me with so much, and you... What will happen is as you pray for that renewed sense of how good God has been to you, your heart will fill with joy and your heart will fill with humility and you'll worship again the way you were designed to worship. Can you do it without the Holy Spirit? There's no way. Seek the Spirit. Okay? Good? Nod at me. Say, or say, dude, dude, get off the stage fast. We have to do this, River West. Can I tell you something? Our church is not sitting here on 2000 Country Club Road by accident. God placed our church here for a reason. And the reason for that is that we would be filled with his spirit and we would walk like Jesus and we would pray and we would leave this place with a desire that God would spread the gospel in our community, in our world. We have got to take this stuff as like priority number one, okay? So will you pray with me right now? I'm going to invite the worship team up, and then I'm going to tell you what we're going to do together. Will you take a minute, bow your head, and let's thank the Lord for his word. We do, Lord.
we think of the masterpiece of this gospel account. Forgive us, Lord, for reading too fast, moving too quickly over things where there's so much going on. We pray that week in and week out as we gather in this place, your word would capture our hearts, capture our imaginations, that we would see Christ for all of his splendor and that we would become joy-filled, humble worshipers. Thank you, Lord. And now we pray, God, that you would pour out your spirit on these next 10 minutes together as we worship. I know, Lord, there are some who've come today and they feel like dry bones. And you love them so much, God. And I pray that right now in this moment, they would feel you flooding their chest with your spirit. Revive human hearts in this place, I pray, Father. Thank you, Lord. We need this gift so much, God. Every one of us, we need it. We pray for it in Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen.